Hey, week three of our identity series, and because you're back, that says a lot about you. So grab your Bible and meet me over in Ephesians chapter four. We're going to talk about community today. Ephesians chapter four. I heard a story once about a a farmer who had to go down and repair a section of his fence because his horse broke through. And as he's getting up that morning to go repair it, he decided to wake up his son to bring him down with him to fix the fence with him. So instead of fixing the fence, he, he takes his son and he teaches his son how to repair the fence. And, and one of his neighbors who's on his morning stroll walks by and he says, he says something to the effect of, hey man, like, what are you doing? Don't you know that's going to take you 10 times longer um, to repair the fence by teaching your son to do it? Why don't you just do it yourself? And, and he goes, oh, oh I, I think you might have misunderstood what I'm doing here. I'm not repairing a fence. I'm raising a son. Every single one of you knows that feeling. If you, if you recall back into your mind, that moment where somebody in your life saw something in you that you couldn't quite see in yourself, and that person who spoke life into you actually began to change the trajectory of your life. I, I heard Jim tell me that when he was a child, um, he was in grade school, and honestly, he, he didn't think he was very smart because of a comment that a teacher had made to him. And yet then, then there was another person that came into his life that spoke something different into him. And they began to speak life into him that changed the trajectory of his life. Maybe, maybe for you, you can, you can picture in your mind that moment, that moment where somebody spoke something into you that, that actually made you begin to believe the truth about you that you couldn't see in yourself. What I know is that for each and every one of us, we're the product of a community of people who shape who we are. And community is absolutely essential to being the type of people we are. You see, you're not, you're not a lone ranger. It takes a community to shape a person, whether it be for good or for bad. Matter of fact, I come from the most interconnected generation in the history of the world, and yet the most disconnected generation in the history of the world. If you didn't know this, I am, I'm sure you knew this, I'm a millennial, but research will tell you that millennials are more stressed out, sleep deprived, preoccupied generation of all time. Gen Z's, our, our next generation, are now referred to, according to most research, as the lonely generation. And here's the reason why. You ready for this? It's important. Proximity does not equal intimacy. Just because you're close to, or just because you have 5,000 followers on TikTok, or you, or you spend eight hours a day on your cell phone, and you seem to be surrounded by people, it does not breed intimacy. My, my sister um, works for CBS World News in Manhattan. She's lived in, she's lived in Manhattan for about eight years, and I love what she says. She says, New York City is filled with 22 million strangers, where there are people all around me, and yet I'm known by nobody. It's the place that you go so you feel like you're connected, and yet you're not connected at all. The issue is that all, all people are designed for real, intimate, authentic relationships with one another, and nothing in the world will replace good old face-to-face getting to know one another. Did you know? Did you know that you will literally become like your five closest friends? I love this. I, I saw one study that said, if your five closest friends lose weight, then you'll lose weight. And so my conclusion with that was you need to find a bunch of apples to go hang out with, not pears. And if you don't know what I mean, when I was 25, I looked much more like an apple. Now that I turned 35, I look much more like a pear. 
All right, so we got to find those people to get around because the people you are around actually determine the type of person you will be. Community matters. It shapes you in every way. It actually shapes the way you dress, the way you function. And, and again, if you didn't know this, get on an airplane and go somewhere else. I, I, during Christmas break, I had to go to San Antonio for a funeral. I got off the airplane to realize that culturally, I look nothing like San Antonio, okay? The cult of Lululemon did not exist in San Antonio. I, I was at my daughter's basketball game the other day, and the bench, the entire bench, was Stanley Cups. You know, I want to go meet Stanley because Stanley done figured out a way to make money, all right? If you, don't, if you don't understand this, you are a slave to your own culture in ways that you really just don't even recognize. You become like the people around you, which is all the more reason if you are a product of your culture that you need to guard the culture you have and put yourself in position to be around people that you want to be like. See, your community matters. Guys... Think about CrossFit. How many of you guys do CrossFit? Come on, if you do CrossFit, you're like, I need you to know I do CrossFit. It's a cult. If you didn't know this, go tell somebody that they belong to a CrossFit gym. You're going to get punched in the throat because it's a box. The reason that people do CrossFit is because community. It's the same thing with, with travel sports. Uh, I used to be big on don't get involved in travel sports until, until you had kids and you did it. Now, here's what I recognize about travel sports. We did it this summer. We did it with baseball. Here, here, nobody out there believed that little Johnny was going to be a professional baseball player. That's not why they did travel sports. What you begin to realize is that community is actually quite incredible. You're hanging out together all day long. There's a common bond and interest. You make friends. And the majority of people have found their community there because the church has failed to create it here. See what's happening? That's why CrossFit works. Every one of us naturally connects to community. The question is, is what do you want to be your primary community? Y'all, we all crave this stuff because we're made for it. We're made for it. But maybe the problem is, is we're finding it in all the wrong places, and that's why, although we have more connections than we've ever had, we're more lonely than we've ever imagined we'd ever be. Think about it. We get up. We work from home. When we do have to leave the house, we pull out of our garages. We never talk to our neighbors. We pull back into our garages. We buy our groceries and our books online. We sit at restaurants, but we don't talk to one another. I don't know. Me and my wife will go out on date nights sometimes, and we're like, man, you're sitting together, but you're looking at the glowing screen right in front of you as everybody's just scrolling through TikTok. We see it with families now. People are craving real, authentic relationships. They don't know where to get it. By the way, did you know this? Statistics now state that post-pandemic America is more spiritually interested than it's ever been. According to stats, according to the Barner Research Group, 84% of Americans say now that they are spiritually interested in ways that they weren't pre-pandemic. Here's the problem. They're not spiritually interested only in Christianity. That's number one. But here's what they said would be attractional. They're attracted to people who actually believe their faith and people who have authentic community. Now, let me tell you the other stat that's alarming. According to this same research, only 2% of Christians have ever shared their faith or invited people into the community. 84% of Americans want it, and nobody's telling them about it. So they're finding it in all the wrong places. 
Y'all, what we need to do, and what we've said all along, is as a church, we need to learn how to intersect our lives with the things we're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality. So here's the big idea for today. You ready for it? You were created for community, and you will never find fulfillment without it. That's it. Let me lay a foundation for you really quickly to give you some theology behind this. When God created the heavens and the earth, when he created the world, Genesis, he did it all in six days. Okay, this same God who hung the stars in the sky, separated the oceans, created Mount Everest and Glacier National Park, this same God in all of his brilliance after he created all of these things does not say that that's the culmination of his creation. Matter of fact, if you go read the poetic nature of Genesis chapter one, he says over and over again, this was good, this was good, this was good. Then he gets to humanity and what does it say? This is very good, very good. But there's something fascinating that he says about this. Genesis 1.26, he says, Then uh, let us, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Two things you need to understand about that one simple verse is this. The first thing is this, is you are the prize of God's possession. You are. And the book of Hebrews says that angels long to have what you have. They long to have the relationship that you have. God didn't create the world because he was bored. He created the world so that you could share in the abundance of his glory and enjoy this interconnected relationship with him. The second thing is this, is you are made in the image of God. We call this the Imago Dei. By the way, if you didn't know this, this gives you extreme value. You are made in the image of God, which is why we have to protect humanity. Notice this, that whenever God created, if you see it up here, he actually changes the pronoun from I to us. Let us create man. Who's he talking about? He's talking about this thing called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? Because they have always, God has always existed in community. If you didn't know this, you were created in the image of God, and an image of a God who is three persons in one existing in eternal community. Always existing, always fulfilled, always in community. That, let me say it this way. God has never existed outside of deep, rich, relational community, which means that you cannot exist or flourish outside of deep, rich, relational community. You are designed for it. You are not designed to be alone. And the reason why so many is, are, are unhappy is because we're trying to function outside of our design. What I want to show you is that the secret sauce to this life is deep, rich, relational community. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. It means the quality of your life will be determined by the quality of your relationships. You hear me? The quality of your life will be determined by the quality of your relationships. Relationships are important. Commonality is important. And a common worldview centered around a belief system is what shapes who we are. If you don't believe me, even social science says this. Listen, I was listening to a, a Harvard research study on community. And li listen to what this said. And I kid you not, Harvard said, if you're connected to a life-giving community, your risk of dying this year is cut in half, statistically speaking. How about this one? They said group-connected people, okay? Group-connected people that have unhealthy habits meaning that they smoke, they drink, and they don't work out, okay? Group-connected people with unhealthy habits will live longer than people who don't have community but have healthy habits. 
they work out, they don't drink, and they don't smoke. Statistically speaking, if you're a train wreck, but you've got great community, you will live longer than people who are isolated and do all the right stuff. That's Harvard saying that. Y'all, everybody understands this. The people you are around make a difference in your life because you're designed to be connected. All right, with that in mind, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I want to pick up on what Paul is saying, and I want to give you a little bit of practical theology behind this. Here's what he says, verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Take note of that word, urge. And the Greek construct of the sentence, urge is actually the very first word in the sentence. That word urge, it's a, it's a super interesting word. It's the word parakaleo. Parakaleo. Say that with me. Parakaleo. See, if you can memorize your venti oat milk, macchiato, macadamia nut latte, you can memorize a couple of these Greek words, and they're really, really important. Para, para kaleo is a compound word. Para, para means to, uh, it means to come alongside. Kaleo means to be called to come alongside. What you're going to see here, what Paul is going to show you, is that there's this commonality that come alongside of one another in our calling. Now, what's interesting is if you look at that word urge, you might be thinking, hey, as a Greek commentator, why would you translate parakaleo to call alongside? Why would you translate it urge? Great question. Because almost exclusively when that word is used, it's used with a common suffering. Now, check this out. How does Paul start the sentence? As a prisoner, as a prisoner for the Lord. Here's what he's saying. What's fascinating about this is how Paul uses this is he's actually suffering. He's actually in prison. But that's not all he's saying. He's painting a word picture for you that what he's trying to tell you is that as he's walked with the Lord, it has cost him something. But he doesn't walk alone. Parakaleo, he walks together. I urge you to join in with this calling to which you've been called because I'm doing it. Like, we're going to do this thing together. What Paul is about to point, uh, paint out for you is that the Christian life is never meant to be lived alone. And if you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which God has called you to, you got to walk together. That's the point. Like the old African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So you can't go the distance by yourself. Paul himself is identifying himself in this common, worthy suffering together because he wants you to see that that's how you do it. If you want to walk or live in a manner worthy of what God has called you to, you can't go alone. One other word you need to, you need to memorize here is that word worthy. The word worthy. So urge is parakaleo. The word worthy is axios. Axios. What does that sound like? Axiom. It's where we get the word axiom from. The word means to even out the scales. Let let, let me give you a picture of what that looks like. What Paul is saying is if you get a wage, so let's say you get paid, say you get paid $10 an hour. What your company is telling you is that your wage is in correspondence with your value. Here's the picture. The life you live is an axiom for how much you value the gospel. 
That's what Paul is saying. That there is a direct correlation between how you live and what you find worthy in Jesus. So how do I know this? That word therefore, again, I mean, we've all heard this. And whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask what the therefore is. Therefore. Great. Paul writes in this thing called the indicative imperative, just to give you a little theology. He normally takes the first half of a book, and he explains all the theology, and then he takes the second half of the book, and he applies the practical nature of how you live out the theology that you just heard. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all theology, all theology. The second half, with this hinge verse, the therefore, is all practical. Here's how this works out in your life. So in chapter one, what does Paul say? He says, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And you've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Chapter 2, he literally calls you poema, poema, poetry. He says you are God's poetry, or you his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Chapter 3, he says that Jesus did all of this so that he could dwell in your hearts through faith. And then chapter 4, he says, therefore, or in light of all of this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Axiom. In correspondence, here's the picture. If you really believe that Jesus stepped off of his throne, put on flesh, lived your perfect life, and died your death in your place, if you really believe that the God of the universe who spoke the stars into existence came to live inside of you, if you really believe that this life all, not all that there is, and it's just a short little glimpse on this eternity where you will live with Jesus, like Tolkien said, and all the sad things will become untrue. If you really believe all that, there's only one logical response to your life, and that is to live for him and to do it together. Pericleo. Let me tell you four practical things that Paul is going to say in chapter one, or chapter four, verses one through three, about our lives and how we live out this calling together. Here's number one, if you take notes. Number one is humility. Here's what it takes. Humility. You see it in the text? I love the way Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis, whoever said it first, said about humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. One of the most profound things that I've learned about humility in the Bible is humility almost exclusively is used as a verb and not as a noun. Here's what that means. It means that you're not a humble person, you humble yourself. It's an action. Humility is what you do that creates who you are. It's not who you are, it's what you do. You humble yourself, you do humble things. Paul is saying that one of the true marks of a life that is walking out a calling that is worthy of the call to which Jesus has called us to is that you're a humble person that you're continually lowering yourself. That might mean that you, you serve alongside of one another. You give yourself to one another because you understand that at the foot of the cross, it's level, baby. We're all the same. I didn't really care what the letters behind your name, if they're PhD, or the letters in front of your name say CEO. When you walk into this building, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Andrew Murray said it like this, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self and the vision that God is all. See it? Humility is looking into the mirror and seeing yourself in light of who God is. When we live in light of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, we stop thinking about ourselves less and we start thinking about others more. Humility means that we give the benefit of the doubt and we assume the best until proven otherwise. You know, can you imagine what would happen in our lives if we entered into the relationship 
with the assumption that you're a smart person and that you didn't mean to offend me? Because I'm just telling you, we all offend one another at different times in our lives. But what if we started out with the assumption, man, you didn't mean to hurt me? And, and I probably just heard that wrongly. That's humility. Humility means that you're willing to enter into a relationship, by the way, understanding that in that relationship, it's going to take work and we enter into it as co-equals. So Paul would say humility. Number two, he says gentleness. Men, gentleness is not weakness, by the way. If you read this text correctly, most commentators actually will translate that word meekness. Meekness is one of the greatest characteristics of Jesus. It's strength under control. There's a difference there. To be gentle with somebody and to be strong is one of the greatest pictures of the gospel. I'm telling you, I can't think of a more God-honoring characteristic than strength under control. Just last week. Last week, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. If you didn't know this, there were two archetypal pictures of, uh, of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Martin Luther King Jr. was on one side. Malcolm X was on the other side. If you looked at them, they were complete opposites in how they handled racism. Malcolm X, if you read his biography, thought that we needed to go to war physically and, and, and with his strength against racism. Martin Luther King talked about a resistance through love. Martin Luther King Jr., to me, is a picture of meekness. He's humility and he's gentleness under control. And that takes a lot of work. Paul would say it this way in the book of Romans. He says, beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. See what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, if you trust that God is actually going to take care of this thing, you don't have to do it yourself. For it is written, listen to this, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, you ready for meekness? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Try that out. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I'm telling you, in this world, people are ready for your reaction. And when you don't react, it's a chance for God to melt the heart in such a beautiful way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the greatest picture of a controlled person. It is the character that God has called you to. Again, can you imagine if that's what the church looked like? If that's the type of community that we had? Humility and meekness. Number three is patience. Patience. Y'all, we are all a work in progress. You know that, right? Like, you have not arrived. You know what's interesting about that word patience? It's actually another interesting Greek word. It's makrothumas. Makrothumas. You want to learn another one? Say it with me. Makrothumas. You know what that means? Macro. Macro means long. Thumas is where you get the word thermometer from. It actually has to do with heat. Here's what patience is. You ready? Long heat or long anger. It's put up with one another. Y'all, they're going to make you hot. That's what Paul's saying. Your ability to be long-suffering or long-anger or be hot for a long time without reacting is a picture of the gospel, 
right? This is, my question for you is, are you willing to give people the amount of patience that you demand that they give you? How many of you are like that? Y'all, we love to get paid. Like, I need some patience. I'm a work in progress. And I get it. Like, given the seat that I sit in, most people aren't very patient with me. They don't give me a lot of room to mess up. But I'm like, do you want me to treat you that way? What if we treated one another the way that we want everybody to treat us? I've shared this with you. There's a great study called the shrinking freshman syndrome. In the shrinking freshman syndrome, here's what it says. The sociologist has said when, when you enter into high school and you're like 14, like you, you kind of hit puberty and you're like, man, I've arrived, right? You feel you got your chest pumped out a little bit and you feel like I'm the man. I deserve to be here. I've made it here. I've gotten through the middle school years, those awkward middle school years, and I've survived. Now I'm here and I deserve to be here. Something interesting happens though. Between your freshman year and your senior year, you begin to treat the freshmen the way that you didn't want to be treated when you were a freshman. They, they're no longer big in your mind. You're 18 now. You think you're a grown man. And you look back at the 14-year-old and you're like, you're just a child. But when you were 14, you felt like you arrived. That is a great picture of what the Christian life tends to look like. When I first became a Christian, I'm going to be honest with you, I was proud I didn't say the F word three times a day. I was like, man, that was a, that was a big improvement. Now... Now, if I'm not selling all my possessions and giving it to the poor, some of you look at me like I'm immature. And I just want to be like, stop forgetting what it's like to be a freshman. Because if you don't forget what it's like to be a freshman in the Christian life, you, you actually treat people with kindness and long-suffering and patience. Because y'all, I'm just telling you, I'm telling you it's hard, and you haven't arrived yet either. The problem is, some of us have been walking with Jesus for so long that you forget what it's like to struggle with the small things. And your struggles have changed, and praise God for that. But don't forget what it's like to just come to faith, or else, or else this room is going to be filled with seniors, and you're never going to reach people with the gospel. But that's not the point. The point is to build a beautiful community together. Number four. Unity. Unity. Matter of fact, if I could tell you that this is Paul's point for the entire chapter, is that the church needs to be unified. And here's what he says, verse 3, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what he says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. You notice there's two words that are repeated quite frequently there, one and all. You see them? One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Listen, this is important. And this, this last phrase here, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the gifts. Here's the, here's the point. Unity is not uniformity. There's a difference. Here, he's not saying that God has called us to sameness but he's called us to oneness. How do I know that? Because even though we're one God, one, 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 hey, but we're all different. God has given each of you different gifts. Listen, write this down. When our oneness is more important than our sameness, we're getting after gospel community. What I mean by that is it's a lot easier to hang out with people that are just like you. 
that vote like you, think like you, act like you, dress like you, but that's not a picture of the gospel. That's easy. Homogeneity is easy, and that's why most of us gravitate towards it, but that's not God's picture of design. God's picture and design is that we would be a people that is unified around the gospel and willing to lay aside our differences in really important things because we're after something more important. Let me tell you where that's going to come. It's going to come head on like a train wreck. You ready? This November. Anybody know what's happening this November? I do. I'm going on sabbatical. (laughs) Are you willing to be unified around things that are more important than things you disagree with. Unity is not uniformity. Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus gives this picture in Revelation chapter five of what the church is supposed to look like. You ready for it? Worthy are you. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God, here it is, from every tribe and language and people and nation. See the picture? Jesus, you've won people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Contrary to popular belief, sweetest Jesus that hung out in your grandma's basement is not the picture of what the gospel is supposed to look like. Matter of fact, he was a Middle Eastern Palestinian Jew. So just all the, all the buzzwords there. God's church is supposed to reflect the unity and diversity of people from every tribe, language, nation, and people. Ethno-linguistic people groups is actually how you're supposed to say this. People that are common bond around this one who was slain, and by his blood, he has ransomed, or he has won you from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And y'all, you are fooling yourself if you think that that kind of community is easy. You're foolish if you think that you're going to get along with or think like every single person that doesn't think like you. Because we all say stupid things. That's why you have to have long suffering. Let's just be honest. Some of us in this room aren't the easiest people in the world to get along with either. We're not. Paul is saying that you have to learn to bear with one another in love if you want to accomplish this kind of community. I'm telling you, some of us aren't that easy to love. And Paul's being real about it. And if you're sitting in the room being like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everybody in this room is really easy to love. It's because it's, it's you. <laughs> when you have a crazy uncle, right, the crazy uncle never recognizes that he's the crazy uncle. You're not that easy to love, and neither am I. That's why we have to be unified around something bigger than ourselves. That's why Paul would say, are you eager to maintain? You know what what that means? You have to pursue it. Eager means you're pushing towards it. You're excited about it. You're not going to fall into this kind of community. Are you developing? Are Are you working on it? Are you pushing towards it? Let me ask it to you another way. When was the last time you had somebody around your dinner table that didn't look like you, think like you, or act like you? That's the most intimate setting in your life. When was the last time you had somebody that didn't look like you, think like you, or act like you around your dinner table? You know, the church is going to be a reflection of your dinner table or your small group or the community. 
And I'm telling you, you will naturally gravitate towards this inner circle of people that are like you, but you will miss out on one of the most beautiful things that God wants to do in you. C.S. Lewis, he talks about this in the book, Four Loves. He, he says that he had, he had three friends, him, Charles, and Tolkien. And what he says is, as we got together with one another, something was drawn out in each of us that was only possible in community. And then he said, when Tolkien died, I didn't just lose a part of him, I lost a part of myself. And he says, listen, he says, it takes a community to know an individual. See what that means? Is like if you want to know yourself and know the people around you, the best way to do that is together. You, know, you have to be eager to maintain this thing. Community is like my yard. You know, you know, I pay a lot of money to make my yard look decent so that the HOA will stay off my back. And every year, every year without fail, one of my neighbors gets this bold and brazen idea that they're going to stop paying the lawn company to come spray the weeds in their yard. And for about six months, it looks really good until the next season comes around and everybody's like. And then it takes them like 10 years to get the yard back. You know, what you have to do is you got to maintain the thing, right? You got to continually do things in it. And that's the only way that community works too. You neglect it, you walk away from it, you try to get the easy way out. Unity doesn't just happen. It takes you going first. It takes you being humble, giving your time, your talents, and your treasures to build a place up, to be meek and control yourself, to be patient, and to do it all together. Before we get into some practical stuff here in just a second, can I give you Paul's main big idea here? Watch this. Your vertical relationships, Paul is saying, is a direct reflection of your horizontal relationship with God. The more mature you are in your relationship with God, the more humble, meek, patient, kind, and unified you will be with one another. So if you want to do an evaluation on how you're doing, go home and ask your spouse how you do with humility, patience, meekness, and bearing with one another. And that will tell you how mature you actually are. Maturity has nothing to do with how many times a week you read your Bible, how many times a week you pray, Maturity has everything to do with are the fruits of the Spirit coming out of you in all of your relationships. So let's get real practical. Watch what, the Paul, uh, watch what Paul says will happen relationally in this type of community. Verse 11, skip down with me, read this. Paul says this, And he, God, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Pause there really quickly. Let me redefine my job description for you according to Paul. By the way, saints are not old dead guys in Catholic churches. Saints are all Christians. Paul's telling you that God gave these leaders in the church not to do ministry. Contrary to popular belief, my job is not to do ministry. My job is to equip us to do ministry together. The church functions best, as you're about to see, when we're all doing it together. So here's what he says. For the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Next slide. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, grow up in every way, 
into him who is the head, into Christ. Next slide. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the words. Build up the body of Christ, maturity, grow up, whole body, love. Here's the point. Jesus is more concerned about the type of person you are than the products you produce. He wants to do something in you more than he wants to do something through you. And the type of people we are are the type of people that should grow up into the fullness of who God has called us to be, to a mature body. You see, the church is meant to be a picture of heaven on earth, the place, the place where we lay aside our differences, the place where all the world overpromises and underdelivers, but you deliver on it. Because in this place is actually possible. We're supposed to be the place where we lay aside our differences and we become a common family. The church is supposed to be the community that actually helps one another, sets aside time to build each other up. And we do that because this is what God has called us to. When you get sick, there are people who are actively there to help you. When your marriage is falling apart, you lean into the community that can support you and walk alongside of you. This is what Jesus' vision for you is, that we become a kind of family, that we build one another up in this beautiful thing called the church. But let me tell you what it's going to take if we're ever going to be this type of community. It's supernatural. Unity, community, humility is not natural. It's supernatural. So here's what it's, here's what it's going to take. First, it's going to take time. Any relationship worth having takes time. Y'all, when I do premarital counseling, the first thing I tell people is that, and, and this is not hy hyperbolic, we've been married for 13 years now, and I think we hated each other for the first two years. I think, you'd have to ask her, I think we like each other now. It took some time to mature as you took two people and relationally brought them together into one house. You know, the honeymoon phase wore off rather quickly. And then we actually had to work towards dying to ourself. And as that happened, like Tim Keller said in The Meaning of Marriage, you changed. He says you marry about 10 different people in your lifetime because you're constantly changing, which means you had to humble yourself again. And the reason why we didn't like each other so much was not because we didn't like each other, but because we were pretty prideful, arrogant, self-dependent people. And community takes time. The way we do that around here is small groups. Our small groups meet together every week for about two hours where we share a meal together and we share our lives together and it takes time. But I'm telling you, small group for my family has been a lifeline. Like the people that I do small group with have become our best friends. They become the people that we've leaned on whenever things are difficult. They, and, and our primary community has now become this small group of people. And we don't just meet on Sunday nights anymore. We actually hang out together. Our kids play together. We take trips together and do different things together. Small group is a decision that took time, but as it's developed, has been the most life-giving thing in my life, in our life. Number two, it's going to take honesty and vulnerability. 
Here's the thing. All of us, if you're smart, have learned to be transparent enough that you're not actually transparent at all. You know what I'm saying? Like that is, that is cultural Christianity 101. How you doing? Man, I'm struggling a little bit. I've been struggling with lust. What you meant was you watched pornography this week, but you're never going to say that. But you're going to give just a little bit to where you don't give anything at all, and people are going to walk away and be like, man, that dude's, that dude's vulnerable. No, you're not. If you're not vulnerable, and hear me, I understand why you're not. Okay, number one, it can be awkward. And number two, people can weaponize that junk against you. And it's messed up. It happens to me. And sometimes I'm like, dude, I just told you that, like, just try to build up a relationship, and the next thing you know it, you're, you're taking that to beat me over the head with it. First of all, don't do that. Don't do that, because if you do that, then you're, you're never going to have authentic community. You're going to have superficial relationships that never go anywhere. But you got to be vulnerable. If you're not vulnerable, you're never actually going to get anywhere anyway. My, my favorite C.S. Lewis quote at all is this. Listen what it says. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a, cos- in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But listen. But in that casket, it will be safe, safe, dark, motionless, airless, and it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love it all is to be vulnerable. See what he's saying? Hang out in safety. Your heart's going to be cold. You're never going to experience real love if you do that. If you want to be the kind of people where this real stuff happens, it's really risky. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Because that's where God grows you. That's where God changes you. And I'd rather be the type of person that God is calling me to be than a fake version that has to wear a mask everywhere that I go. Here's number three. It's going to take us slowing down. Slowing down. Dallas Willard was once asked, what must we do to be spiritually healthy in this world? I thought his, his answer was quite fascinating. He says, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Now, here's what I didn't say. I didn't say busy. I get it. We're all busy. Everybody's busy. Busy is not a bad thing, contrary to popular belief. Jesus was pretty busy, you know, saving the world and all. But he always had margin to stop. Remember that? Feeding of the 5,000 where he took a little kid's Hebrew Happy Meal, multiplied it out for everybody. He's on his way to go He's on his way to go heal a 12-year-old girl that's dying, and he stops to heal a woman on the way. He always had time to retreat and pray. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't busy. He wasn't hurried. And there's a massive difference there. He had the margin to respond when necessary. See, you're going to be busy people. Matter of fact, you should be busy people. You're pretty type A people that is pretty successful at everything you do, you're not going to not be busy, but do you have margin in your life to respond when it's necessary? Or are you so full to the brim that you can't ever respond when God has something for you? 
If you want to have relationships, you're going to have to slow down. You're going to have to be attuned to what's going on around you. You're going to have to be the type of community that you give yourself to. That takes time. That takes vulnerability. And it, and it takes a sense of emotional intelligence. Let, let me land the plane for you like this. A couple years ago, if you're new around here, you didn't know this, but if you've been around here, you know this. My wife and I went through one of the most challenging, tragic situations in our entire life. I was sitting up here at the office. Um, the engine on my car had just died, and so I didn't have a car. It was a Toyota Camry, and I'm like, that's never supposed to happen. Um, and she calls me, and she says, I think my water just broke. That's, that's a beautiful thing when you're not 22 weeks pregnant. Not like, no way. We go to the OB. The OB says, you need to go to the ER right now. We go to the ER. They admit her into the hospital, and they tell her that she's going to have our baby within 24 to 48 hours. And if that happens, it's not going to be good. Well, 24 hours goes by, no baby. 48 hours goes by, no baby. What you have to understand is during COVID, they didn't let our babies into the hospital. So they didn't know when this baby was going to come. She spent two months isolated in the hospital, not seeing a soul. And I'm at home with our other three kids in the community here at City Church. Changed our life. They came and people come and they came and sat down with Allison in her room and gave her gifts and flowers and stuff to do. And I just kid you not, we didn't make a meal for three months. And everywhere we turned, people were praying for us and caring for us. And, and it changed us. Y'all, that's what community is supposed to do. Now, this little goober named Keller Owen Lowe is like a, I can't say that word. He's crazy. He's crazy. And he's completely healthy. And what that did for us is it made community stop being theoretical. And it started being something that we experienced. It shaped us. Here's what I want you to know. God has designed you for that too. To be the type of people that knows that you're not alone. And you're not. And the church is supposed to be the place where you experience that. I just believe that some of you need to know that when you give yourself to this thing, it's going to change your life in the best of ways but it takes time and commitment. But you give yourself to it because, like Paul said, is that's how you grow up into the fullness of Christ. That's how you become who Jesus has made you to be. As you speak into one another's lives, as you give yourself to this thing, as you build the margin so that God can continue to pour out into you through one another. Listen, he's already done everything necessary to save you, and he's building his church. See, when Jesus was asked to teach him how to pray, what does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way it works. God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven through one another from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, giving themselves to this thing called community, living in this place, and doing it together. Let me pray for you. Father, I believe that you've got great things in store. 
I believe that you want to do a good work in our lives. And I just believe that for some of us, the thing that's holding us back is this step. We've given ourselves to you, but we need to give ourselves to one another. God, I think that you, you want to do something in us and through us that's only possible when we do it together. Parakaleo. So Father, I pray that today would be the day that some of us would recognize that maybe the thing that is missing is the people of God locking arms side by side and living in community. Help us to be a light to the gospel of this world, but help us help us to be a light to one another too. To see your grace in our life, to call out the good that we see in one another and to build each other up into this thing that only you can do in us. It's supernatural, so we need you to do it. We're praying that you would do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.